the source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 speeches as compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of more than 100 leading scholars of public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. Of course, the reason you listen to a choice voice varies from an interest in the subject matter and what you might do with it to a general appreciation of a great voice ready to read your commercials, audiobooks, or other voice acting projects, you can ask for more information in the A Choice Voice subreddit on, you guessed it, Reddit. And that, of course, is linked in the show notes. Picking back up with the second half of this speech, Nikita Khrushchev's so-called secret speech, where we learned that Stalin was not such a great guy. Who knew? Enjoy. During the war and after the war, Stalin put forward the thesis that the tragedy which our nation experienced in the first part of the war was the result of the unexpected attack of the Germans against the Soviet Union. But, comrades, this is completely untrue. As soon as Hitler came to power in Germany, he assigned to himself the task of liquidating communism. The fascists were saying this openly. They did not hide their plans. In order to attain this aggressive end, all sorts of pacts and blocks were created, such as the famous Berlin-Rome-Tokyo axis. Many facts from the pre-war period clearly showed that Hitler was going all out to begin a war against the Soviet state, and that he had concentrated large armed units together with armored units near the Soviet borders. We must assert that information of this sort concerning the threat of German armed invasion of Soviet territory was coming in also from our own military and diplomatic sources. However, because the leadership was conditioned against such information, such data was dispatched with fear and assessed with reservation. Despite these particularly grave warnings, the necessary steps were not taken to prepare the country properly for defense and to prevent it from being caught unaware. Did we have time and the capabilities for such preparations? Yes, we had the time and capabilities. Our industry was already so developed that it was capable of supplying fully the Soviet army with everything that it needed. Had our industry been mobilized properly and in time to supply the army with the necessary materiel, our wartime losses would have been decidedly smaller. Such mobilization had not been, however, started in time. And already, in the first days of the war, it became evident that our army was badly armed, that we did not have enough artillery, tanks, and planes to throw the enemy back. Very grievous consequences, especially in reference to the beginning of the war, followed Stalin's annihilation of many military commanders and political workers during 1937 to 1941 because of his suspiciousness and through slanderous accusations. During these years, repressions were instituted against certain parts of military cadres, beginning literally at the company and battalion commander level and extending to the higher military centers. During this time, the cadre of leaders who had gained military experience in Spain and in the Far East 
was almost completely liquidated. After the conclusion of the Patriotic War, the Soviet nation, stressed with pride, the magnificent victories gained through great sacrifices and tremendous efforts, the country experienced a period of political enthusiasm. The party came out of the war even more united. In the fire of the war, party cadres were tempered and hardened. Under such conditions, nobody could have even thought of the possibility of some plot in the party. And it was precisely at this time that the so-called Leningrad affair was born. As we have now proven, this case was fabricated. Those who innocently lost their lives included comrades Vosnesensky, Kunetsov, Radionov, Popkov, and others. Facts prove that the Leningrad affair is also the result of willfulness, which Stalin exercised against party cadres. We must state that after the war, the situation became even more complicated. Stalin became even more capricious, irritable, and brutal. In particular, his suspicion grew. His persecution mania reached unbelievable dimensions. Many workers were becoming enemies before his very eyes. After the war, Stalin separated himself from the collective even more. Everything was decided by him alone without any consideration for anyone or anything. This unbelievable suspicion was cleverly taken advantage of by the abject provocateur and vile enemy Beria, who had murdered thousands of communists and loyal Soviet people. The elevation of Voznesensky and Kunetsov alarmed Beria. As we have now proven, it had been precisely Beria who had suggested to Stalin the fabrication by him and by his confidence of materials in the form of declarations and anonymous letters and in the form of various rumors and talks. The question arises, why is it that we see the truth of this affair only now? And why did we not do something earlier, during Stalin's life, in order to prevent the loss of innocent lives? It was because Stalin personally supervised the Leningrad affair, and the majority of the political bureau members did not, at that time, know all of the circumstances in these matters and could not, therefore, intervene. The willfulness of Stalin showed itself not only in decisions concerning the internal life of the country, but also in the international relations of the Soviet Union. The July plenum of the Central Committee studied in detail the reasons for the development of conflict with Yugoslavia. It was a shameful role which Stalin played here, the Yugoslav affair contained no problems which could not have been solved through party discussions among comrades. There was no significant basis for the development of this affair. It was completely possible to have prevented the rupture of relations with that country. I recall the first days when the conflict between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia began artificially to be blown up. Once, when I came from Kiev to Moscow, I was invited to visit Stalin, who, pointing to the copy of the letter lately sent to Tito, asked me, Have you read this? Not waiting for my reply, he answered, I will shake my little finger, and there will be no more Tito. He will fall. But this did not happen to Tito. No matter how much or how little Stalin shook, not only his little finger, but everything else that he could shake, Tito did not fall. Why? The reason was that in this case of disagreement with the Yugoslav comrades, Tito had behind him a state and a people who had gone through a severe school of fighting 
for liberty and independence, a people which gave support to its leaders. You see to what Stalin's mania for greatness led. He had completely lost consciousness of reality. He demonstrated his suspicion and haughtiness, not only in relation to individuals in the USSR, but in relation to whole parties and nations. Let us also recall the affair of the doctor plotters. Actually, there was no affair outside of the declaration of the woman doctor, Timus Book, who was probably influenced or ordered by someone. After all, she was an unofficial collaborator of the organs of state security to write Stalin a letter in which she declared that doctors were applying supposedly improper methods of medical treatment. Such a letter was sufficient for Stalin to reach an immediate conclusion that there are doctor plotters in the Soviet Union. He issued orders to arrest a group of eminent Soviet medical specialists. He personally issued advice on the conduct of the investigation and the method of interrogation of the arrested persons. He said that the academician Vinogradov should be put in chains. Another one should be beaten. Present at this Congress as a delegate is the former Minister of State Security, Comrade Ignatiev. Stalin told him curtly, if you do not obtain confessions from the doctors, we will shorten you by a head. Uh. In organizing the various dirty and shameful cases, a very base role was played by the rabid enemy of our party, an agent of a foreign intelligence service, Beria, who had stolen into Stalin's confidence. In what way could this provocateur gain such a position in the party and in the state, so as to become the first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union and a member of the Central Committee Political Bureau. We'll continue with this speech right after this quick break. Hello, hello, friends. This is a quick break, which I'm putting in the middle of this great speech. For all you advertisers out there, this is where your message goes. I'm talking about that message you have so lovingly crafted to tell the story of your thing. Your magnificent thing, the thing none of us will ever need to live without ever again. This is your chance. Jump on it. Feel free to tone it down a bit there, John. Yeah, what he said. Oh, right. Note to self, don't get so worked up, John. For listeners, please pay attention to that when it comes. For now, breathe deeply, give yourself an epic massage, and just enjoy everything. Really, everything. <sighs> now back to where we left off. It has now been established that this villain had climbed up the government ladder over an untold number of corpses. Were there any signs that Beria was an enemy of the party? Yes, there were. Already in 1937, at a Central Committee plenum, former People's Commissar of Health Protection Kaminsky said that Beria worked for the Musavat intelligence service. But the Central Committee plenum had barely concluded when Kamenitsky was arrested and then shot. Had Stalin examined Kamenitsky's statement? No, because Stalin believed in Beria and that was enough for him. And when Stalin believed in anyone or anything, then no one could say anything which was contrary to his opinion. Anyone who would dare to express opposition would have met the same fate as Kaminsky. Comrades, the cult of the individual acquired such monstrous size 
chiefly because Stalin himself, using all conceivable methods, supported the glorification of his own person. This is supported by numerous facts. One of the most characteristic examples of Stalin's self-glorification and of his lack of even elementary modesty is the edition of his short biography, which was published in 1948. This book is an expression of the most dissolute flattery, an example of making a man into a godhead, of transforming him into an infallible sage, the greatest leader, sublime strategist of all times and nations. Finally, no other words could be found with which to lift Stalin up to the heavens. We need not give here examples of the loathsome adulation filling this book. All we need to add is that they all were approved and edited by Stalin personally, and some of them were added in his own handwriting to the draft text of the book. Comrades, if we sharply criticize today the cult of the individual, which was so widespread during Stalin's life, and if we speak about the many negative phenomena generated by this cult, which is so alien to the spirit of Marxism-Leninism, various persons may ask, how could it be? Stalin headed the party and the country for 30 years, and many victories were gained during his lifetime. Can we deny this? In my opinion, the question can be asked in this manner only by those who are blinded and hopelessly hypnotized by the cult of the individual, only by those who do not understand the essence of the revolution and of the Soviet state, only by those who do not understand in the Leninist manner the role of the party and of the nation in the development of the Soviet society. Our historical victories were attained thanks to the organizational work of the party, to the many provincial organizations, and to the self-sacrificing work of our great nation. These victories are the result of the great drive and activity of the nation and of the party as a whole. They are not at all the fruit of the leadership of Stalin as the situation was pictured during the period of the cult of the individual. Let us consider the first Central Committee plenum after the 19th Party Congress when Stalin, in his talk at the plenum, characterized by Cheslav Mikhailovich Molotov and Anastas Ivanovich Mikoyan and suggested that these old workers of our party were guilty of some paceless charges. It is not excluded that had Stalin remained at the helm for another several months, comrades Molotov and Mikoyan would probably not have delivered any speeches at this Congress. Stalin evidently had plans to finish off the old members of the Political Bureau. He often stated that Political Bureau members should be replaced by new ones. We can assume that this was also a design for the future annihilation of the old Political Bureau members and, in this way, a cover for all shameful acts of Stalin, acts which we are now considering. Comrades, in order not to repeat errors of the past, the Central Committee has declared itself resolutely against the cult of the individual. We consider that Stalin was excessively extolled. However, in the past, Stalin doubtless performed great services to the party, to the working class, and to the international workers' movement. We should, in all seriousness, consider the question of the cult of the individual. We cannot let this matter get out of the party, especially not to the press. It is for this reason that we are considering it here at a closed Congress session. We should know the limits. We should not give ammunition to the enemy. We should not wash our dirty linen before their eyes. 
I think, that the delegates to the Congress will understand and assess properly all these proposals. Comrades, we must abolish the cult of the individual decisively, once and for all. We must draw the proper conclusions concerning both ideological, theoretical, and practical work. It is necessary for this purpose, first, in a Bolshevik manner, to condemn and to eradicate the cult of the individual as alien to Marxism-Leninism and not consonant with the principles of party leadership and the norms of party life, and to fight inexorably all attempts at bringing back this practice in one form or another. To return to and actually practice in all our ideological work the most important theses of Marxist-Leninist science about the people as the creator of history and as the creator of all material and spiritual good of humanity, about the decisive role of the Marxist party in the revolutionary fight for the transformation of society, about the victory of communism. In this connection, we will be forced to do much work in order to examine critically from the Marxist-Leninist viewpoint and to correct the widely spread erroneous views connected with the cult of the individual in the sphere of history, philosophy, economy, and of other sciences, as well as in the literature and in the fine arts. It is especially necessary that in the immediate future we compile a serious textbook of the history of our party which will be edited in accordance with scientific Marxist objectivism. A textbook of the history of Soviet society, a book pertaining to the events of the Civil War and the Great Patriotic War. Secondly, to consider systemically and consistently the work done by the party's Central Committee during the last years, a work characterized by minute observation in all party organizations from the bottom to the top of the Leninist principles of party leadership, characterized above all by the main principle of collective leadership, characterized by the observation of the norms of party life described in the statutes of our party, and finally, characterized by the wide practice of criticism and self-criticism. Thirdly, to restore completely the Leninist principles of Soviet socialist democracy expressed in the Constitution of the Soviet Union to fight willfulness of individuals abusing their power. The evil caused by acts violating revolutionary socialist legality which have accumulated during a long time as a result of the negative influence of the cult of the individual has to be completely corrected. Comrades, the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union has manifested with a new strength the unshakable unity of our party, its cohesiveness around the Central Committee, its resolute will to accomplish the great task of building communism. And the fact that we present in all the ramifications the basic problems of overcoming the cult of the individual which is alien to Marxism-Leninism, as well as the problem of liquidating its burdensome consequences, is an evidence of the great moral and political strength of our party. We are absolutely certain that our party, armed with the historical resolutions of the 20th Congress, will lead the Soviet people along the Leninist path to new successes, to new victories.
Long live the victorious banner of our party, Leninism. Next week, we hear from former U.S. President John Adams, as opposed to his son John Quincy Adams, as he gives his inaugural address. Join us. This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes... Techno King, John C. Brandy, Alter Ego, Doubting Thomas, Fact Checker, A Small Brown Beef Animal, Seriously, Tiny. Facts are important but are also easy. Social Manager, Abraham Lincoln, Media Expert, Augustus Caesar. Psychologist, William James, Sound Designer, Adobe's Creative Suite, Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy. French Consultant, Leah, The Do Your Own Research Lady, Videographer, Eto Monkoshki, Audio Props, Les Paul. Inspiration, Many Podcasts and Other Sources and of course Napoleon Hill. We also have websites, and you can subscribe to both podcasts. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message. But, of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to get the links and stuff. And all those clickable links are in the show notes. And before we forget, the artificial intelligence or AI voices that you hear in our work are offered up by Google, Amazon Polly, and OpenAI like we say in the show notes. They don't sponsor us yet, but we love what they do, and we just love what AI can do when lovingly crafted. Finally, you can find us on Protmatch.com, Matchmaker.fm, Podbooker, and Podcast Guests, where we consider guests and consider guesting on other people's shows. And really, finally, the music for our pods comes from Cute by Ben Sound and from Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams, as well as from AI MuseNet. The sound effect credits go to Jackson Academy Ashmore, Canusi G, Doctor Jekyll. Joe Payne, Everything Sounds, MK Play More Stories, ERH, Sand Emotions, Big Pickle 51, and Just Kidding, yes that's his or her name, all on freesound.org. Also, languages are the bomb. Paul.